Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas talk. And, uh, and I'd like to give a big thank you to, to Sydney Ideas for, for helping us put this on. My name is Dr. Chris Stewart. I'm the, the director of the Professor Harry Messel International Science School. Um, I'm just wondering, are there any of our alumni in the audience tonight? Just stick up your hand if you're an alumni of the ISF. No, right, that's it. I'm going to have to get onto our, our alumni people. That's just not good enough. I did put the call out. Um, the ISS has been running here at the University of Sydney for over 50 years now. It's a high school program where we bring talented science students from all over Australia and all over the world to Sydney for two weeks of inspiring talks, amazing activities. We show them a really good scientific time here in Sydney for, for two weeks. And we're right in the middle of that right now. And so for the last week, I have been in charge of looking after 140 very energetic science nerd teenagers, which has been a lot of fun. We're having a great time. And as part of that program, we always try to find and attract down to Sydney in our horrible winter, uh, winter temperatures that we've been having lately, some of the, the most inspiring and interesting speakers, researchers in their field from, from all over the world. And tonight's speaker agreed to come and, uh, and speak at the ISS for us for our theme this year, which is future power. And so fusion energy was one of the, one of the big ideas that I really wanted to talk about there. Um, and then we were uh, in contact with Sydney Ideas and they said, why don't we put on a public lecture? And I thought that would be a really good idea. So I hope you very much enjoy the show tonight. There are a bunch of other um, big talks coming up in Sydney Ideas. So do take note of those and come along um, to enjoy those ones as well. But tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about what is one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, um, experiments in, in history, experiments that's currently being built on the, on the planet. It's got an enormous amount of potential. It's got an enormous number of challenges. But there's no denying that the, the sheer effort, sheer intellectual and physical and engineering and scientific effort going into trying to build the, uh, the ITER fusion experiment down in the south of France is definitely a story worth telling. Our speaker tonight, uh, up until very recently, was the, uh, the CEO of the UK's Atomic Energy Authority, which is the, um, the organization that runs the, currently the world's largest fusion experiment, the Joint European Taurus Jet, which in itself is a pretty impressive machine, as you'll find out. Um, but it's nothing in compared to what's coming next. Um, he got his PhD at Oxford before going over, that is correct, isn't it? Yes, at Princeton, sorry, my, forgive me. Uh, his undergraduate degree at Oxford, PhD at Princeton. Ended up on the faculty at um, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Um, and then wound up over in the, the UK, almost makes it sound like it was an afterthought, wound up as the CEO of the UK's Atomic Energy Authority. But when I was talking to, to him recently, he said that uh, one of the reasons why he got out of that position was not that he didn't enjoy running a very large organization and organizing huge teams of people and working on the politics of, uh, of the industry, but more that 
he wanted to get back to working with students and working on the physics and working on the next generation of ideas that are going to be needed in order to get this work done. And I think that's a pretty inspiring place to be coming from. So could you please give a wonderful, warm Thursday evening welcome to Professor Stephen Cowling. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, it's been a wonderful time. Um, if you uh, ever get the chance to stand in front of, um, was it about 120 um, 18-year-olds who ask you questions about your own field that you can't answer, I suggest you say no. Um, uh, it's absolutely fascinating to be with such um, bright young people. Thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. Um, I'm going to talk about fusion, um, and I deliberately, of course, gave a provocative title. Um, I'm quoted in the press as saying it is the perfect way to make energy, except one thing, we don't know how to do it. Um, and there is that famous joke about fusion, that it's 30 years away and always will be. Um, I, I, tonight I'm here to tell you that it's 30 years away. Um, uh, it's, um, it's an immense uh, problem and one that deserves an awful lot of thought. And I hope if I convince you of anything, um, it is worth all the effort that we're putting in to try and make it work. Um, it is a fantastic way to make energy. Um, if it can be made to work, it will make a major difference to the future of um, our world. Um, but it's also a fascinating science problem. And one of the great things I always say to my students is, uh, you don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to continue to try to save the world. Uh, you get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to do some science and that will be fun. Um, so I hope I can convince you that there are some very interesting things to think about here. It's actually not 30 years ago that we started trying to think about fusion. Um, it's about 100 years ago um, that we started thinking about fusion. Um, this is a picture of our sun. And the theories of what the sun are, of course, date back to prehistory. Um, you know, the Greeks had ideas about what the sun was, etc. But by the middle of the 19th century, there was a conventional view as to what the sun, what made the sun hot. Um, and this view was best articulated, I think, by Lord Kelvin um, at the University of Glasgow, um, who was a very God-fearing man. Um, and his view of why the sun was hot was that it's a great big ball of gas rain, the same as the sun, and it has, because it has all that weight and all that mass, it has gravity and it's pulling itself inwards. And as the gas falls inwards, it gains energy. That energy is turned into heat. That heat heats it up and it gets pressure, which pushes back against the gravity. And at any instance, it's kind of in an equilibrium between the pressure pushing outwards and the gravity pushing inwards. But because it's hot, it radiates. And when it radiates away some of its energy, it gets cooler and it falls in a bit further. And then it radiates a bit more and it falls in a bit further. And it radiates a bit more and it falls in a bit further. And Kelvin, being the smart man that he was, could work out this process and figure out roughly how old the sun was. And he said it's 20 million years old. 
actually, that was kind of embarrassing. And it, it, it's one of the things that, that Darwin said was um, one of the, the sharpest critiques of um, Darwin's theory. Because if the sun was only 20 million years old, then the earth, life on earth couldn't be older than 20 million years. And he didn't believe that he had enough time for evolution to happen in 20 million years, and that this was a real thorn in his side. And this was all going on in the sort of the 1860s. And that theory of what the sun was remained the theory that everybody would say, well, of course, the sun is doing this. This is, this is what it's doing. Right up and really until 1920. And in 1920, this man, Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington, who's probably the greatest theoretical astronomer of the early part of the 20th century, um, he was on the ex expedition to South America in 1917 where um, they measured the bending of starlight around the sun and confirmed the general theory of relativity. Um, a very great man. And in 1920, he was president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science and he had to give the presidential address. And he gives, and you can read this because it's online, it was published in Nature, the actual address. Uh, one of the greatest public talks on physics that's ever been given because not only is it a clear public talk that can be understood by almost anybody with a little bit of scientific background, but it's also, in fact, a complete you know, research topic all worked out in front of you, but only using a few basic facts. <clears throat> Eddington said, my topic is what is the sun made of? He said it, it is plainly obvious from a number of measurements including looking out at other stars that are so distant away they're much older than it's much further away than it would take light to go for 20 million years and they look just like the sun um, and also through geological evidence and through other inferences the sun just simply cannot be 20 million years old and if it's not 20 million years old and it's been giving out light all that time, then there must be some energy source that's powering the sun. It can't just be falling in on itself. And so there must be something inside the sun that's doing this. Now, in science, sometimes being lucky is all you need. And he was a bit lucky. Well, he was also very smart, of course. But um, he was a bit lucky because uh, Francis Aston at this time had just made very, very precise measurements. He had perfected a mass spectrometer which allowed him to make measurements of the mass of hydrogen and the mass of helium with great precision. And Eddington had read of these, um, of these experiments and he recognized that in the spectrum of light coming from the surface of the sun were the lines of hydrogen and the lines of helium. Therefore, he concluded that the sun was predominantly hydrogen with at least some helium inside it. Um, that, that was somewhat known at the time. That wasn't just Eddington's conclusion. He said, perhaps what's going on inside the sun is that the sun is converting hydrogen into helium. And he said, supposing there is some mechanism in which you can take 
four hydrogen atoms and convert it into one helium atom. You can obviously do that very easily because four hydrogen atoms have a, a charge of the nuclei have a charge of plus four, and the nucleus of helium has a charge of plus two. So he said, well, somehow you capture two electrons, and you make helium. Now, he didn't know what this mechanism was, and indeed, in 1920, we actually didn't really know, we, we didn't know about the neutron, for instance. But in fact, the, the nucleus of, of, of helium is made of two protons and two neutrons. But he didn't have to know that to get the answer that he, he wanted. He wanted to know how much energy came out when you, when you took four hydrogens and converted it into one helium. And because they'd measured the masses, and because he knew E equals mc squared, he knew that if you took hydrogen of a mass 1.00794 atomic units and converted it into the uh, uh, mass, sorry, which has... Um, that mass in atomic units, and the mass of helium was in that is 4.0026 atomic units. Basically, if you took 1.008 kilograms of hydrogen, you could make one kilogram of helium. And what happened to that eight grams that you were left over? Well, that eight grams had been converted somehow into energy. Because if you knew the mass that you'd lost, you knew the energy that would come out. And that energy, which is 7.5 times 10 to the 14 joules of energy, is enough energy to power your life for 10,000 years. Phenomenal amount of energy from converting four hydrogen into helium. He went on and said, so, well, supposing this is, this is happening, and the sun takes roughly a third of its mass and converts it from hydrogen to helium. How much energy is that? And how, how long would that allow the sun to burn for? And he worked out it would allow the sun to burn for 10 billion years. And he said, well, I think the sun is probably about 10 billion years old, or at least it's going to last for about 10 billion years. And that's about right. And all he had done was a little arithmetic that... Um, the 18-year-olds could certainly manage. Um, and he'd concluded actually what's going on inside the sun. Interestingly, really no idea what, how this mechanism worked. But this is fusion. This is taking small atoms and making them into bigger ones. And the, the process of how fusion actually takes place took probably, well, well, probably, took 20 years basically to work out and was roughly in place by the, the Second World War. We understood that there are two forces going on inside the, the nucleus. One is the repulsion of protons, because they're positively charged, and light charges repel, and the attraction of both protons and neutrons due to something called the strong force, which sticks the nucleus together. And by the beginning of the Second World War, we understood that actually the optimum nuclei are right in the middle of the periodic table there, iron, basically, iron 56. Um, and that's a medium-sized nucleus um, where we've stuck a lot of neutrons and protons together to make that little ball that's the, the, the nucleus. And that's one that has the most binding energy of the nucleus 
And so everything smaller than that wants to, to stick together to get to iron, and anything bigger than that actually wants to get smaller. And when you get up to uranium, it so wants to get smaller, it's willing to split in half and fission in order to get basically to the middle of the periodic table. And this understanding how the forces work inside the atom was pretty much there um, by 1939. But during the war, of course, people started to think about nuclear energy uh, for two reasons. One to power ships and, and the other to make bombs. Um, and during that process, they are also started to think about not just making energy from splitting atoms, but making energy from joining atoms together. And indeed, Eddington himself had said in that speech in 1920, wouldn't it be marvellous if we could actually use this process to make useful energy for mankind? Um, those were quite sexist days, so um, the other half of the human race was not considered in that statement. Um, but, but the process of how it would happen and, and what it would take to do was not within his grasp at that time, so it's sort of a throwaway comment from, from Eddington at that time. But during the war, as well as thinking about how to build bombs, and to build bombs that both were powered by fission and by fusion, because, of course, the hydrogen bomb has a fission and a fusion component in it. Enrico Fermi um, and several others started thinking, how would you control a fusion reaction? It was already apparent that you could not do fusion reactions at normal temperatures. The problem of sticking one nucleus to another nucleus is that when they're far apart, nuclei repel each other because the positive charges and the electromagnetic force, the electrostatic force, is a very long distance force. So nuclei far apart, repel, repel, repel. And the strong force that sticks them together doesn't happen until you get them within about 10 to the minus 14 meters of each other. Really, really close. So mostly they repel, they repel, and you have to get them very, very close in order for them to actually stick. And this is fine in the middle of the star, because in the middle of the star, you typically, well, in the middle of the sun, you have a, a, a temperature of about 15 million degrees. So all your hydrogen are rushing around, bumping into each other, and just occasionally they bump into each other close enough that a fusion reaction happens, and energy is released from that fusion reaction. Um, and there's a whole sequence of reactions that actually turn hydrogen into helium. But... How would you do that on Earth? You can't have, you can't have 15 million degrees in a pot. Right? You can't have 15 million degrees touch anything, essentially. So, people started to worry about how you would do that. And indeed, Fermi must have thought about this probably after they'd finished most of their work on the atom bomb, because in late 1945, in, um, in Los Alamos, they had a kind of demob conference. All these famous scientists who had been working on the atomic bomb, and it was really the greatest collection of physicists that's ever been assembled in one place, um, were about to go back to their universities, they were about to go back to civilian research, and they thought they would have a conference about all the things that they were thinking about 
that might happen in the future. And this conference was one in which nobody was allowed to take any notes because they wouldn't want a record of some things because it might be useful to the enemy. Um, and so at this conference, nobody was allowed to take any notes. But this is late 1945. And by this time, the British contingent in Los Alamos uh, knew that very soon the Americans were going to close the doors and not collaborate anymore with Britain on nuclear issues. Um, and indeed, in 1946, they, pa they passed the McMahon Act, which shut the UK out of nuclear secrets until 1958. Um, so we wanted to make sure that all of our scientists came back from, um, from Los Alamos with as much information as possible uh, to start the British uh, nuclear programs. And uh, the organization I used to run uh, essentially started, although not officially, didn't officially start till 1954, but essentially started in 1946 with the foundation of a lab called Harwell near Oxford. And it was important to bring back as much information as possible. So the British scientists who were in the audience of these talks at this conference in late 1945 were asked to um, write down their recollection when they got back to their room that night and pass it to a gentleman who would be visiting them from the British uh, Embassy in Washington. Um, and P.B. Moon, who was a nuclear physicist who ended up at the University of Birmingham, took notes on Fermi's lecture where Fermi described how you could possibly take a hot plasma, that's an ionized gas, made of deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen, and confine it in a magnetic field and hold it so it doesn't touch anything else in a magnetic field and, and hold it sort of in space in an evacuated chamber and get it up to temperatures where it would react and produce fusion reactions. And it's not a very long note, but it's the only note, including within the archive at Los Alamos, of exactly what Fermi said in this. And it's basically us spying on the Americans um, means that we actually know the history of how these ideas first started. The idea of doing that, of course, is to produce the conditions, sort of like the center of a star, where you can join hydrogen to hydrogen and make some kind of helium. It turns out that doing, taking four ordinary hydrogens and turning them into helium is really, really hard. And the sun is a very slow fusion reactor. If you take the center of the sun, the energy that's produced per centimeter cubed in the center of the sun is about 200 milliwatts per cc. That doesn't make a good reactor. Um, that would be so low energy density, we wouldn't want to do it like that, even if we could do what the sun does, which we can't. Um, we had to do fusion reactions that are going to be faster than those ones that are, happen in the center of stars, and therefore we had to use the exotic isotopes of hydrogen, and that's why he started thinking about heavy hydrogen at that time. It's taken us, since then, to get to the verge of a fusion burn. We are about at the point where we will be able to create the conditions where we will be able to heat fusion fuel. I'm going to tell you all the physics in a moment, but the fusion fuel up to those temperatures where it will begin to react and it will begin to make enough energy that it will sustain itself 
and you can have a burn. There's a big difference between making a bit of wood light because you applied a match to it and setting it alight so it sustains the burn and can keep burning on its own. You know, when you first apply the match, if you take it away, it'll go out. But if you get it going strongly enough, then a fire will burn and you can even put more wood on it and it will burn that too. That's what we want to do with fusion with the ITER experiment. This is the picture of where the ITER experiment is right now. It's in a gorgeous place to have an experiment. It's in the near Aix-en-Provence in southern France. Um, the wine is nice, the cheese is nice, the weather is nice, especially for an English person. Um, uh, and that is a picture of the assembly hall just to the right. Um, you can see the, the position where the machine is going. Um, this is a, a project that's going very, very slowly. Um, I'm not going to talk about its budget because it's just a disaster. Um, but, I mean, it, it was... Okay. Yeah, I'll say something. Um, it started out at about five to six billion. I think now the expected price is at about 15 billion uh, euros to build this device. Um, but it's going to be one of the most incredible experiments that we ever did. If we actually make it work, it will make a sustained fusion burn. It will be just like a little star that burns. Um, that's an incredible experiment. It's not everything we have to know to be able to do fusion commercially, but it's... A, it will be the first time we've ever done it in a controlled way. And that machine is not going to do four hydrogens makes one helium. It's going to do this, um, this fusion reaction. Actually, it was first discovered by um, an Australian, Mark Oliphant, who worked for Rutherford um, in the 1930s at Cambridge and then came back to Australia, I think, in the... 19, late 1940s or something. He was certainly in England during the war um, and uh, was a stalwart of developing physics in this country. Um, it's the reaction between, in the top left-hand corner, deuterium and tritium. These are two isotopes of hydrogen. Isotopes means that they're chemically like hydrogen because they both have charge plus one. And deuterium has a proton plus a neutron. In my picture, the protons are green, the neutrons are blue. I always make the joke that they aren't in practice coloured. Um, but deuterium um, is heavy hydrogen, and tritium, which is a very exotic isotope of hydrogen, is one proton and two neutrons. And it turns out that this reaction is by far the easiest fusion reaction to do. Uh, for the physicists in the audience, it's because it's a resonant interaction, it passes through the J3 hard state of helium-5. Um, but for those of you who are not physicists, that doesn't matter at all. Um, so what, what do you do? You've got to get your, your, your deuterium and your tritium together. So at distance, they repel. So if you, if you sort of fire them at each other very slowly, they will do this. They won't get close enough to react, and they will just bounce off each other. Typically, they're not going straight at each other, so they'll do something like that. But if you get them moving at energies that correspond to hundreds of millions of degrees in temperature, because temperature is really a measure of energy in this respect, um, if you get them moving at each other uh, at that kind of speed, they'll get close enough, the strong force will grab them pull them together, make for an instance helium-5. Helium-5 has two protons and three neutrons in it. 
it'll spit out helium-4, which is ordinary helium, and a neutron, um, and with it, the helium and the neutron carry immense amounts of energy. I'm using physicist units for the energy. The helium takes one-fifth of the energy that comes out, and the um, neutron four-fifths. Um, that reaction is very much the easiest fusion reaction to do because the distance you have to get them to each other for the strong force to, to essentially act is larger than it is for any other reaction. The problem with this is that tritium doesn't exist in nature. It's actually a radioactive isotope of hydrogen and it decays in 12 years. So you have to make it. But fortunately, you got a neutron out of this. And if you put lithium in the walls of your reactor, the neutron will come out, it'll smash into the lithium, and the lithium will break up into tritium and helium. And you can take that tritium, and you can put it back in your reactor. So tritium isn't a fuel. Tritium is an intermediary. The tritium is made and consumed, made and consumed. The fuels here are deuterium, which you get from seawater, and lithium, which at the moment you get from um, what are called salty brines in the, in the Andean high desert. Um, but actually for fusion you could extract it from seawater. There's 0.2 milligrams per litre of seawater. So whenever you, have, whenever you have sea salt, you have a little lithium, which does slightly enhance your mood. So um, <laughs> don't go home and eat a lot of sea salt. Very bad for you. Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, lithium-6, which is 7% of naturally occurring lithium, is the relevant isotope for this. Um, but to make this happen, this reaction up here is your fusion reaction. And roughly to make that happen, uh, we, we, we can't just fire deuterium at tritium, because essentially you, you can't aim that well. Um, what we've got to do is have the deuterium and tritium moving round at great velocity, bashing into each other, and every now and again when they bash into each other, they get close enough and they fuse. And to do that, you've got to heat your deuterium and your tritium up to something like 200 million degrees in order to get the relevant reactivity that we need to sustain the reaction. So that's the, what seems like impossible thing to do. How do you ever contain something at 200 million degrees running around like that? This other reaction, which is making your tritium, that can happen in your walls because there's no repulsion between a neutron and lithium. The neutron is neutral. So as they go towards each other, it just comes in, it hits the lithium, and it creates energy in the walls of your reactor. So that might be at 600 degrees, steel will work, everything will be fine in your wall. So if that reaction is not the hard one to do. It's the one in the orange that... Um, you need to do. The question is, why would you do this, this reaction? Well, you do this reaction because, because it's the easiest one to do. There are people out there trying to do much harder reactions. For instance, there's a firm in Irvine, California called um, Tri-Alpha that wants to do the fusion reaction between a proton and boron-11. Um, that requires energy some... 10 times the temperature uh, that we're talking about here, and it's still a much, much lower reactivity even at that temperature. 
Um, but the advantage being that protons and borons can simply be um, harvested. You don't have to breed them. Um, that company, I think, has had so far about $2 billion worth of venture capital money. So uh, you can persuade some people quite a lot of things. Um. So what are the resources? If you want to do that reaction, and supposing we wanted to power the world, a useful unit is sort of how much energy the world currently uses per year. And so ask yourself, if we could do that fusion reaction and use the energy we make in that fusion reaction to power the world, what could we get out of it? And since I was doing this for the... Um, is it going to move? This is what I prepared actually for the, for the ISS students, which was just to, to look at the oceans and ask how much fusion fuel there would be in the oceans. If we could do Eddington's reaction and turn all the hydrogen in the world's oceans into helium, it would power the world for 10 to the 13 years. Um, this is overkill because there will be no world after 5 billion years um, <laughs> because the, the sun will have swollen to become a red giant and swallowed the world. So you really don't need to do that. Um, <laughs> there's enough deuterium to power the world for 50 billion years um, in seawater. There's enough lithium to be used in a reactor that uses the deuterium-tritium reaction to power the world for 30 million years. Now, it seems to me that one should not be shy in developing something just for 30 million years. Um, that's probably a good start. Um, and so, at this point, uh, my personal consideration is that this is the reaction to pursue. It's the one that the world has spent all its money uh, pursuing. It's not... We, People like to say fusion, it's nuclear power without radioactivity. The byproducts of that reaction are helium. And not very much helium. We could just, I mean, we could fill balloons with it. Um, we could release it into the atmosphere. And as I said to the students the other day, it's not going to make us all have squeaky voices um, by releasing it into the atmosphere because it's, it's a small amount of helium even compared to the world's resources at this time that, we, you would, you, that you would produce over those 30 million years. But that's not the issue. In, in that reaction, deuterium and tritium coming together, four-fifths of the energy come out as a 14 megavolt neutron. It's a cannon shell of a neutron. And it comes and it hits the wall, and inside your steel wall, or whatever you've made the wall, it's, it might smash into a nucleus in the wall, and it can activate those nuclei. And if you made it of ordinary steel, your wall, you would get activation of your wall. And you might say, okay, this is, this is not good, right? We're just trying to get away from doing uranium fission, and now we've got some activation. Um, it's far less. But I would, if I tried to pretend this is not nuclear, it is nuclear. You, you, you have to deal with some aspects of nuclear. This was an analysis in 2006 of the waste one of those fusion power stations would produce. Um, and to be compared with the red line and the blue and, and the blue and magenta line at the top, which are the lines for a typical fission power station that's currently being used in in uh, Europe. 
Um, the lines for the, the for the different designs of, of fusion power stations are the lower lines, the green um, lines, and the yellow lines at the bottom. It starts, and the and the axis on the left hand side is basically the, the amount of radiation that you're producing at the end of the lifetime of the reactor as it's cooling down and you're letting it um, it go on. You start a thousand times less radioactivity is produced in your reactor. But the important thing is it's short-lived. And by about 200 years, everything that you have in your reactor has a radioactivity that's below the level of a lump of coal. Because coal is slightly radioactive. Um, just almost everything is. Bananas are too. Um, and so by about 200 years after the closing down of your reactor, everything is as radioactive as a lump of coal. And that's quite nice. That means when you stop using your reactor, you just shut the door for 100 to 200 years and you've got a perfectly safe thing that you could then recycle and make a new reactor out of. So in that sense, the waste problem from fusion is trivial. What will ITER do? So here's ITER. Here's a, a, a CAD of ITER. Let's explain what's going to actually happen. So the main thing is this yellow donut-shaped hole in here, which you'll pump all the air out of. And into that hole, you're going to put your deuterium and tritium. You put it in initially as a gas. Around that hole are these superconducting magnets here. Those superconducting magnets are cooled to 4 degrees Kelvin. 4 degrees above absolute zero. And they apply a magnetic field that goes around the loop inside this hole. That magnetic field for the cognoscenti on what we call the magnetic axis, which is about here, is 5.2 tesla, and right on the coil here is 11.8 tesla. So right at the limit of magnetic technology today. Inside that hole there, you produce the plasma. Um, when you switch it on, what you do is you, you, you run a magnet through the, the, the center here, which causes a voltage to go around that loop. And that voltage takes your deuterium and tritium gas, turns it into a plasma. A plasma is when the electrons are ripped off the atoms and they go in one direction and the positive charges go in the other direction, and it starts to carry a current of 15 million amps around that loop. When it does, because you may remember from high school physics, like currents attract, one side of the 15 million amps attracts the other side of the 15 million amps, and it squeezes itself into the middle of that container. And when it squeezes itself into the middle of the container, it's no longer touching the walls, and at that point, you can heat it up to 200 million degrees and you can get it to start to react. And that's the simple principle of how you make it work. These are the seven countries. I, of course, asked the kids to name the flags, but um, I'm not going to embarrass anybody in the audience in case you don't know them. Um, the partners are essentially the European Union, Russia, Japan, Korea, China, India, and the United States. In this, and uh, Australia has now signed a memorandum of understanding with ITER um, to, to do work on, on ITER and some very important 
work on the physics, uh, some work on the materials, and um, uh, and some work on the, the diagnostics, the, the, the experiments that look in, and if, if the thing's working, you want to know how well it's working, so you need diagnostics of what's going on inside something at 250 million degrees, which would be the typical temperature of the deuterium and tritium mix that's in this donut-shaped hole. At peak power, what's been promised is that the baseline performance will be about a half a gigawatt of power. So of order a smallish power station, that's of heat, not of electricity, because nobody's going to make electricity from that power. Um, it's going to be turned on and off. Nobody wants to buy electricity that you turn on and off at random points. Um, and the flat top will be at least 400 seconds, probably thousands, actually. Um, so what will it actually do? So let's look. Oh, let, so that magnetic field, once you created, you've ripped the electron off all the atoms of deuterium and tritium, you now have charged particles. And inside the magnetic field, those charged particles moving around the magnetic field lines and don't touch the walls. And a typical orbit they might have is um, this one here. Um, this is just a picture of actually what happens to one of the helium produced in the reaction. So in the reaction between the deuterium and tritium inside here, each reaction produces a helium, which is a charged particle, and a neutron. And the magnetic field doesn't affect the neutron, it just goes and hits the wall. But the magnetic field captures the helium, and the helium is very energetic. And it plows through the, it plows through the plasma, bumping into deuterium and tritium. Now, it can't do any fusion reactions with them, so it just gives up its energy by bumping into them. And so that the helium that you produce in your fusion reactions can heat your plasma. And that's great, because you don't have to provide any more heat. If you produce enough fusion, it will self-heat and get to a burning state. So the whole point of this is to try to get to a, a state where the self-heating is sufficient to keep the thing going. And then you, your fire is alight. So if we had 500 megawatts of power, 100 megawatts would be coming out. Alphas is what physicists call helium nucleus. Um, so 100 megawatts of self-heating power, in, I've drawn the plasma as being pink. We always used to draw the British Empire as pink on the, and so now the plasma is. Um, <laughs> we're colonizing yet again. Uh, 100 megawatts of power of self-heating, uh, 400 megawatts of neutron power coming out, and this is the reaction between the deuterium and tritium producing the helium and the neutron inside the plasma. Now, um, huge amounts of effort. I mean, if you're spending 15 billion, you ought to do an awful lot of computer simulation. And um, I, I'm a theoretical physicist by training, so most of my life has, has been spent trying to perfect the models of all the processes that go on inside a device like this so that we can model it and try and optimize it so that we can get it to work better. Um, and this is a, a sort of super simulation in the sense it takes all the models and it puts them together and tries to simulate what an actual, what we call a discharge of ETA, would look like. And in this case, uh, so it's quite simple to understand, and I'm going to take scan two. 
partly because it's a bit optimistic, uh, partly because it's the most validated set of models. All the other scans make different assumptions, and this is an experiment, so we don't exactly know what's going to happen. And the fact that all kinds of different things might happen is exciting but worrying. Um, so scan two is the um, sort of the best set of models we have at this point with the opt with the assumptions that we believe most. So along the bottom here, you've got time. So here we are, time. It keeps making a sort of whiny sound. Can you turn down? Can you turn it down a little, Chris? Yeah. At zero, magnetic field is on in eta. You put in your deuterium and tritium at time t equals zero, and you make that current of 15 million amps go round the loop. When that happens, your deuterium and tritium gas becomes a plasma. It's an ionized gas, like in your fluorescent light bulb. Your fluorescent light bulb is a plasma at 10,000 degrees. This is a plasma by this time at about uh, 10 to 20 million degrees during this period here. At this time here, you turn on heater beams. These are massive accelerators that are bolted onto the side of the device. They accelerate deuterium in the accelerator and they neutralize the deuterium to make it deuterium atoms because it can't get in as a charged particle because there's a magnetic field which would make it just go straight out again. So we send them in as neutralized deuterium atoms. They go into the middle of the device, they ionize in the middle of the device, they're caught by the magnetic field and they apply heat. And those beams will apply 70 megawatts of heat at that time. At that time, the central temperature shoots up to about 230 million degrees, and, and at which time it starts producing fusion power. And this is a measure of the fusion power coming out of the simulation. You can see here a bunch of instabilities that happen. Those are all modeled in this system. Now, what we do here is this is the input power, 70 megawatts, step it down to 50 megawatts, right? This is the match. This gets you burning. At 400 seconds in, we turn off the external beams. You turn off the beams, but the fusion power keeps going in scan two. Um, the fusion power keeps going because the plasma is heating itself. It will continue to react and continue to produce fusion power, we keep sending in frozen pellets in the simulation, frozen pellets of deuterium and tritium to keep putting more fuel into it. Um, and we keep getting 500 or so megawatts of fusion power. If that happens in ITER, it'll be the historic moment in fusion research. That's the moment in which we've actually made a fusion reaction that sustains itself. It's a little star that burns on Earth I'm hoping it's going to happen in my lifetime because ITER is not scheduled to start till 2025 and this experiment will have to be after all the systems have been running for a, for a time and we're happy to, to go forward and turn on full power, etc. So it's probably around 2030. I'm planning to live to 2030. So I should be there sitting in the control room uh, watching this thing burn. It'll be a historic moment. I mean, it's fantastic. There are two questions. Are we sure this is going to happen? And this is not the end of the road. We want commercial fusion. 
This is just a demonstration that you can make fusion energy and you can make it in copious quantities. But you've just spent 15 billion to make zero energy, uh, zero electricity. <laughs> well, you've made some energy, but we just waste it. We put, the cooling system just keeps the walls cool. Um, how far is that from a commercial reactor? I mean, when the Wright brothers took off and went round in a circle and came back again, uh, it was fantastic, but it, you know, didn't make any money. Um, but actually, it's remarkably quick after that that aeroplanes actually started carrying people around and the technology was, became a commercial technology. Those questions I'll give you a bit of a taste of. Um, I don't have time to take you through the details. Um, I tell you my fundamental um, contention is that we need to do these experiments in order to progress in fusion. But we need some extra ideas to bring down the cost and the scale of the devices that we're going to build so that we can come to market with a device that actually the consumer wants. Um, they're too big and too costly at the moment, but there's every expectation that we can do that, it's just we have to do it. Um, how do we know that ITER will work? That's the first question I said. Well, ITER is two times JET. JET is the machine at Cullum, 10 miles south of Oxford, in the laboratory that I ran for eight and a half, nine years. Um, and it was so successful, Jack, that when they decided to build ITER as an international device, they basically took the ruler and said, we'll make it two times jet in every direction. Um, that ought to be big enough. And the simple thing is, when you make it bigger, see, this magnetic field holds the plasma, but it leaks a bit. Some of the heat that's in the center of the plasma leaks to the outside, and if you just left it alone, it would cool down, and you couldn't keep it at this temperature. And you have to get enough fusion going to, to replace that leakage. So what happens when you get to a bigger device is it just takes longer for it to leak from the center to the outside. It's further to go. You double the size, it turns out it takes eight times longer from the heat to get from the middle to the outside. And that's exactly what we've done with the ETA device. We've doubled the size of it and we made the magnetic field stronger, both of which should both intuitively and in very detailed computer calculations say that we will get the right length of time in order... We've got to make the time it takes from heat to get from the middle of the device to the wall about four seconds, it turns out. Um, and the predictions are it should be more than four seconds. We've got a little bit of leeway. But here's a picture of the inside of Jet. This is um, from the top. This is, you can see a bit of the, of the donut-shaped inside. Uh, it's got a um, robotic arm because all the work inside JET is done remotely by robots, because inside ITER, because of the activation, we will have to do it all robotically. So on JET, we practice that. This is about two times my height. So I would, my, if I stood on the bottom there, I'd come up to the bottom of the robotic arm. Uh, so that gives you a feeling of the scale. The inside of this device, JET has, has run twice with tritium in it. We normally run only with deuterium in it, but it's run twice with tritium, and most significantly in 1997. And just before I left, we got permission to run tritium again from the European Union. We used to be in the U European Union. Um, <laughs> uh, who fund this device. Um, and, um, 
And uh, so we bought some tritium. It's uh, 30,000 a gram. We bought quite a number of grams. Um, some of the most expensive stuff you can buy. It doesn't smell very nice. Um, uh, <laughs> you don't smell it. Uh, um, and uh, we revamped the inside of uh, Jet um, to have metal on the wall instead of carbon on the wall because the carbon was absorbing tritium and that was becoming a safety hazard. So this is actually beryllium. If any of you know what beryllium's like, it's nasty stuff. Um, and this is tungsten on the bottom here. And this rebuild happened about uh, four and a half years ago. Um, so we're ready, actually, to break our own world record for fusion power. Um, because JET is sort of scale similarity to ITER, if we understand how things scale from JET to ITER, um, we do understand how it... It scales from things that are half the size of jet to jet. Um, and the models do that prediction correctly. We hope that the models then predicting the scaling from jet to ETER are correct. Um, we should be able to predict the performance of, of ETER from the performance of jet. And this is probably the most famous graph that we have in fusion research. This is fusion power actually produced in the experiment. This is the time of the discharge. Now, Jet, this is a picture of Jet, and there's the standard uh, British man, hands on hips. Um, the, um, it has copper coils and not superconducting coils. So when you go at full power and you're making these really intense magnetic fields, they get hot. So you can really only run Jet for six seconds at full power. And that's limited by the technology and not by the plasma um, or the fusion physics. Um, so we always plot zero to six seconds. Now the record is this blue one here where we managed to get the fusion power to rock up to about 16 megawatts of power. But actually, it's great. We always quote that. But at that moment, something terrible happened to the plasma. It went right back down again. Um, ITER is really designed on a set of experiments and the scaling from a set of experiments like this where we brought the fusion power up to sort of three to four megawatts of power and then closed it down at the end. During that 16 megawatts uh, shot, we were putting in 24 megawatts of heating power. So it wasn't really close to being self-sustaining. In fact, the self-heating on that was um, one-fifth of that, so about, about three megawatts. So most of the heat going into the plasma was, was being applied by us and not um, by, the, by the fusion itself. But this is a prediction for what will happen in 2018. Um, my colleagues don't like me doing this. They say, don't make predictions. Um, but I made them do the calculations. Um, and we think we can bring it up to somewhere between 15 and 20 megawatts, sustain it, and bring it back down again. So if we do that, we'll be in the papers again. That's not the only way we, we know how it might happen. The, this is a picture... Um, so I thought you'd enjoy actually looking at this picture. It's a bit like looking at the lava lamp, actually. Um, this is a picture of, of one of the biggest simulations ever produced in the uh, civilian world. Um, it's, a, it's a simulation of uh, one of the fusion experiments in uh, San Diego, and it took three months on what was then the world's largest supercomputer. Um, and you, what you can see is the bubbling turbulence. In the middle, you've got this huge temperature, and at the edge of your plasma you've got a temperature of maybe 10,000 degrees. And that causes little instabilities that cause the 
the, the, the plasma to bubble away. If we didn't have those instabilities, then it turns out that a fusion device that would roughly sit on this table would, would get to ignition. It is the presence of those bubbling, swirling instabilities that the computer is calculating here um, that has caused the leakage out of the bottle and meant we've had to make these immensely large magnetic fields and these immensely large machines to make it work. If we can understand that table and better, and if, indeed if we could turn it off, we would, um, we, we would be doing fusion right now. Um, I wanted to show you some of the work from ANU, but I've run out of time. Um, just <laughs> sorry about that, ANU. Um, um, just to sh say that, um, that the plans, because countries like China are so worried about their energy future, they actually have plans to make an electricity-producing reactor, which is a just slightly scaled-up version of ITER by uh, 2035. Uh, that would be their demonstration reactor would make electricity. But it uses the technology of, of ITER. Uh, the, the Koreans, too, have one. Um, we in, we in, um, in Europe, when we were in Europe, um, uh, have a plan, too, but we, we've now officially said by mid-century. Uh, the definition of mid-century might be helpful there um, uh, to actually produce some electricity from fusion. As I said before, and I just really want to finish on this, I... I think we have made great strides to be able to actually make plasmas that make fusion. That's remarkable. And if ITER actually gets to the point that it's a self-sustaining fusion burn, it will be worth at least 15 billion. Remember, the world's energy market is 7 trillion a year. So to make a prototype of what might contribute hugely to the world's energy market for 15 billion, it's worth doing. But it's not the end of the road. And to get to commercial fusion, we do need to bring down the cost and scale so that we can make units that fit into the market, that will adapt to the market and, and, and work. And we know, we know that it's sort of there because we know if we got rid of the turbulence, we can make much, much smaller devices. And, you know, the secret to making airplanes fly is to get rid of the turbulence. Bricks don't fly very well. Aerofoils do. Right. Um, so, one of the pushes I've been having is to look for different configurations, this is one of them, called the spherical tokamak, where we can bring down the cost and scale. And in the 1990s, we constructed a, a device like that, and then we upgraded it in the, two, in, in the noughties um, into this device that you can see operating here. And in this device, we found a way. You can see the turbulence bubbling away. This is toroidal, but it's more like a cord apple than a bicycle wheel. And you can see the turbulence go away at some point, and we've got into a very interesting state of stabilized turbulence. Only for a second or two. But I think we understand why we did now, and we understand it's because we spun the plasma at supersonic speeds. The middle of that plasma was moving uh, almost at 1,000 kilometers a second, g going around, and the edge was not rotating. And that was combing out the turbulence and allowing us to get much better. And I've run out of time, so I'm not going to describe the simulations that confirm that that happened. So about um, four and a half years ago, 
I finally managed to persuade the, the UK government that we should actually exploit this innovation and try and build a device that would get to real fusion conditions. Not do fusion, because doing fusion means we have to handle tritium, but just build a device next to JET that would get to those conditions and it's, um, it's, we'll have its first plasma in about three months. And this is um, my last slide. This is how fast we work in Britain. You've heard of the British worker. Um, this is taking apart the, the device that you saw the pictures of and completely rebuilding it over a period of the last two and a half, three years um, into a new device that I hope when we launch it in October will start to produce conditions very much like the conditions in JET, but in a device that's about one hundredth of the size. If we can push the scale down, then perhaps we can follow ETA's you know, historic experiments with a set of devices that actually can take us to market. And by the second half of the century, we'll be making electricity. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.